If you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to take them to the book of Ruth. You may want to mark that place because over the next successive weeks, we're going to make our way through this little book of Ruth. And what a fascinating story it is. And there are so many truths that we glean from that. You know, oftentimes in Jesus' ministry and in the New Testament epistles, there is a hearkening back to Old Testament accounts and stories that bring to light truth that is applicable for our daily lives. Now, I think we need to be careful in doing that and to properly interpret that. And I've known many down through the years that really run roughshod in their applications and what they're trying to show in the Old Testament. It can be, it can be very difficult sometimes to, to draw out from Old Testament stories New Testament truth. But I, I believe it's there for that. The, uh, the, the Apostle Paul said in Romans that the things that were written aforetime were written for our admonition, for our teaching. And so I think there, there can be things that are gleaned out of Old Testament historical accounts that apply to our lives spiritually in Christ Jesus today. And so that's what I want to do over the next successive weeks is look at the book of Ruth and, uh, and draw application for our lives from it. But we'll pick up reading in Ruth chapter number 1, verse number 1. We'll read down through verse number 7. And I want to talk to you today about sojourning in Moab. Sojourning in Moab. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife, and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, sorry. And the name of his wife was Naomi. And the name of his two sons was Malon and Chilion. Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. And they took, themse- took uh, to themselves wives of the women of Moab. And the name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on their way to return unto the land of Judah. I want to speak to you this morning on sojourning in Moab. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. God, I pray that you would take our hearts by the Holy Spirit and that you would begin to teach us. Help us to be plain. 
Help us to not overstep our bounds when we look at a historical account and and try to speak spiritual truth in our lives. But at the same time, Father, that's what this is here for. It is to teach us. And so, God, I pray that you'd give me discernment and leadership as we we glean from here those spiritual truths that help us live lives in accordance to God's Word by the Spirit of Christ for, for the love of the Lord Jesus in our life. Father, I pray that as we go through the book of Ruth, I pray that you would remind us of redemption story all over. Because that is the heart of reviving. It's to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us, who we were before, and how Jesus has changed and impacted us for eternity. Show us the beauty of our Savior throughout the book of Ruth. Show us our need of a Redeemer, a kinsman Redeemer. Father, we ask these things for the glory of Jesus Christ and the teaching of our hearts. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Bible commentator W.G. Halslip writes this about the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth consists of less than a hundred verses. And yet it would be impossible to exhaust it during the lifetime of a minister preaching from it every Sunday. It is a garden enclosed, a mine filled with the rarest and richest gems and rubies, a treasury of illuminating truths. And I say amen to that. To that. In the book of Ruth, there are scenes that are tragic, like we see today. Tragic scenes, domestic scenes. We see the dynamics of families in the book of Ruth. We see romance, drama, historic applications and scenes, and also prophetic utterances coming from the book of Ruth. Yet each scene is a mine filled with precious gems. You know, this is one of only two books in the Bible that are named after women. There is Esther. Do you know the story of Esther? Esther was a Jew that had married a Gentile husband, the king at the time in their foreign land. You'll have to get in the story of Esther. We'll be here all day. But when you go into Esther, she was married to the king who was a Gentile. But in the book of Ruth, it seems just the opposite. Ruth is a Gentile married to a Hebrew husband. When, you know, throughout the book of Ruth, Ruth is really in the spotlight, obviously, because her name adorns the, the, uh, the, the, the title of this book. But, you know, when you think about Ruth, I was talking to a fellow pastor. He's kind of asking me what I'm doing on Sunday. We're catching up. He'd been out of the country for quite some time, and we're just catching up with messages back and forth on Facebook. And, and uh, he was telling me what he was going to start going through. He's in a new church, and he's going to go down and preach on the I am's of Jesus. What a wonderful study that is. And he asked me what I was about to do, and I, or what I was doing. And, and I, I let him know that we're, today, the first Sunday, we're going to start down looking at the book of Ruth. And, and this guy, he is sharp. Steve Tillis, a good friend of mine. Hopefully one day I'll have him in this pulpit. Steve Tillis, a good friend of mine. I mean, he is sharp. He's smart. He's done a, had a lot of education, a lot of training. And, and he was saying, did you know where the... He asked me, he said, do you know where Ruth is placed in the Hebrew canon? Like the Hebrew Bible? You know, they, they contain the same thing, but oftentimes in the Hebrew canon, the order is different. For example, in our Bible, our English translation... We find the book of Ruth placed chronologically as you look 
uh, from Genesis on through these historical books, they're placed in there chronologically. We know from the opening verse of Ruth that this came in the time of the Judges. And here Ruth is placed right after the book of Judges. And so we see that it's placed in there chronologically, but that's not so with the Hebrew canon. Oftentimes they're put in a different order. And he said it was pretty, it's insightful to see how that in the Hebrew canon, the book of Ruth comes after the book of Proverbs. And he said what's, what's illustrative in that, if you'll remember, the book of Proverbs ends with Proverbs 31, which talks about what? It's that virtuous woman. It's that woman who is seen uh, as, as uh, something to aspire to among women, someone uh, someone uh, that uh, is a virtuous woman. You know, she sells the field. She does this and does that. She's a very, a very sharp individual. And that leads right into, from Proverbs 31, right into the story of Ruth. Could we not say that maybe Proverbs 31 is some sort of illustration of who Ruth is? So Ruth is someone that we should aspire to, uh, uh, to be like or to emulate or to see for her virtues. But the book here, the the book Proverbs thirty one, she gives us the virtues and exemplified uh, virtues that are exemplified by the actions and character of Ruth. That's what I was trying to say. So, a fitting title to the book of Ruth would be uh, some sort of love story of redemption. I'm calling it redemption story. But this book is very much a love story, love story between who we'll see later, Ruth and. Boaz and how, how they're match made together, how that he does the things in order to possess her as his bride. And it's very much a redemption love story. The book of Ruth's a beautiful picture of Christ's great love for us and the redemption of that he did to purchase us. The key word in the book is kinsman. Look with me at Ruth 2. And verse number 20, it says, Ruth 2 and verse number 20, And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who hath not left off his kindness of, uh, to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said unto her, The man is near kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. A kinsman redeemer is what is in focus throughout the book of Ruth. And as we go through the book, we'll see this love story of redemption unfold and remind us that Jesus, Jesus is our ultimate kinsman redeemer. If we look at any Old Testament book, we need to keep one thing in mind is that it is to point us to Jesus. And so when we look at the book of Ruth, by the end of the book, we will see that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He's the one that pays the price. He's the one that goes through the embarrassment of paying redemption's price for us because he loved us, because he claimed us as his own. But the first scene of the book of Ruth is a very dramatic and sad scene. The book of Esther and the book of Ruth, they make perfect movies, don't they? They, they end on... Uh, happily ever after types of themes. Everything works out in the end uh, just as, as God had planned it. But these opening scenes are, are difficult. 
we open the scene of Ruth with these first seven verses and, and see the, a departure, a departure of Elimelech and his family from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to the country of Moab. Now I believe that if we are careful with this text, I, I believe that we can see a departure from the will of God. A departure from the will of God that will end up in tragedy and causing one to turn back to God. I think when I think about this story, these first seven verses of, of a departure and a return, I'm reminded of William Kirkpatrick. He was a popular minister of music among the Methodist camp meeting scene in the 1890s. On one occasion, he he became burdened at a particular meeting with one of the singers that was singing with different groups and, and, and leading worship there at the meeting. This particular singer uh, was one that would sing solos and then, uh, then would quickly disappear from the service of the meeting. He would avoid any kind of gatherings with other believers, any kind of fellowship times. He was noticeably absent. These are all telltale signs typically of someone that's away from God. Someone, you know, in, in, our, in our natural state as believers, we should crave to be with other believers. That's part of who we are, the body of Christ, and, and to be with other believers. But when we, have, when we have a hesitation to do so, oftentimes, I'm not saying every time, but oftentimes, it indicates that there's something wrong between our, in our relationship with God. And that's what Kirkpatrick saw in this young man's life. And so uh, Kurt, uh, William began to pray for the young man and, and earnestly seek that, that he would be, make things right with God. It was noticeable how he was being convicted. Things need to be made right. And so William Kirkpatrick just prayed for this young man. And as he was praying for it, God laid upon his heart to write a song, we usually sing it at invitation times in, in our day and time. But it's an invitation song. But he, he had him to write a song and then he would have this particular young man sing that song before the preaching of the Word of God. And after doing so, uh, he, he introduced the song to the young man. The young man was willing to sing it. He stood up in the service and sang this song. Lord, I'm coming home. You know that song, Lord, I'm coming home? The paths of sin, no more to roam. Here we see, upon singing the song, he was reminded, the man remained in the meeting and was the first to hit the altar that night and make his life right with the Lord Jesus. You know, that song, Lord, I'm coming home, is very similar to our story this morning in the end. It has the same result. When we look at this text, I believe that we see every one of us that have wandered away from the Lord, we can come home. And no matter how drastic, no matter what price we paid in our wandering from God, there is always the invitation to come back home. That's what we see Naomi doing at the end, but what a price, what a price that family paid. So I want us to learn from that this morning. First of all, I want us to see it in three ways. Number one, I want us first of all to be conscious of roaming from the Lord. Conscious of roaming from the Lord. 
The scene of our account comes from a time of the judges in the Old Testament. I pointed that out earlier in verse number 1. It talks about the judges. Now, notice how the book of Judges ends. Maybe you go back one page and, and just look at how the book of Judges ends in, in the last chapter, 21, in verse 25. And in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eye. Now, I believe that we could rightly and aptly apply that verse to the, the spirit of our age. Don't you think so? Every man just does what is right in their own eyes. There's no, uh, there's no north star of God's moral law. Every man's just doing what, what they feel. If it feels good, do it. It's the, seemingly the mantra of this era. But I believe we could also not only apply that to a a lost world around us in many, in many aspects, I, I believe we could apply it to God's people. I was uh, thumbing through Facebook and I have found the most interesting uh, Facebook page. Uh, I don't remember the guy's name. It's called the Red Pen Apologetics. And he will take videos where someone makes a train wreck from the scriptures and then he will take and explain that and put it rightly. It's great, great. Well, I was watching one last week and the, uh, the indication, the, the first video that as you sit there and you watch it was a young man who was taking the story of Lazarus and showing how that from we see Jesus telling Lazarus to come out that this was Jesus indicating that those that are in the LGBTQ community should come out. That it's some sort of affirmation uh, of, of uh, some sort of affirmation of Jesus uh, 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 affirming the, uh, the, the, the lifestyle of homosexuality. A complete train wreck of scripture. It's, it's an indication of someone who, I don't know, I, I think the guy, he may be, I don't know his, his spiritual condition, but I know this. Oftentimes, a lot of people will take God's Word and twist the fire out of it to make it fit what they want to do. Every man does what is right in their own eye, and they'll twist the Scripture, put it in a headlock to try to make it mean what they want to do. And, I, and, and, and so I believe that that, in, in regard, could be applied. Every man did that which is right in their own eyes, could be applied to, the word, to, to, to much of the Christian community. And you see, for many, in this situation, they sit on the throne of their heart that does not belong to them. If they're genuine believers, there is a throne of the volition, the will, the heart, and they're sitting on it and not King Jesus. And a throne that should be inhabited by the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Now what we read of in the opening verses of the book of Ruth is the outcome of a nation that's departed from God. I went through, you know, uh, years ago, preached through the entire book of Judges, and I'm telling you what, what a, what a, I mean, yes, it has its high points, but the low, I don't know if you read the book of Judges, the low points of the book of Judges are low, low points. It is a, it is a nation that has come off its hinges, that has basically lost its mind, Every man doing what's right in their own eyes. And because of that, if you'll follow the book of Judges, and I think I've said this before, it's a cyclic thing. They'll, 
They'll be in the deep lows. Their enemies will be upon them. There'll be famine. There'll be bad times. They'll cry out to the Lord. God will send a redeemer. God will send a, a, a deliverer. The deliverer will come deliver the people of God. They will be right with God. Then all of a sudden they will idolize the, the deliverer. They will put him on a throne. And then we see the same cycle over and over. Bad times will come. They'll call out to God. Here is one of the troughs, one of those low areas where it's a bad time. And it's a time of, uh, it's a time of famine. It's a time of national judgment from God. I, I believe that. I believe God can judge a nation. You know, God doesn't deal with nations like he deals oftentimes with individuals. When a nation's morality tends to fall away from God there will be judgment upon it it's just a recompense of sin it's not what you sow is what you reap and so I believe that here this uh, um, Elimelech and Naomi and their little family are enduring a judgment from God on the nation and I want you to notice when we look at this I want you to notice the sadness of their departure the sadness of their departure. When we look at their roaming, we see that they left. It's almost as though the names involved in this account speak volumes about what's taking place. Now, you know, granted, we could look at this and see very factual statements about what's taking place. It was the time of the judges when this land, when this uh, that time took place. The judges ruled. There was famine in the land. There was a man from Bethlehem, Judah. Went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he, his wife, and his two sons. The man was uh, Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. The name of his two sons was Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. There's not a whole lot there, but when we look in God's Word, oftentimes we can go into the names of individuals, and I believe we can find truth. For example, I'll give you a good example of this in Jacob. You know the story of Jacob, the son uh, of Isaac, and how that... Jacob was, the name means heel snatcher. The name means deceiver. And that was his character all until God changed his name and made him a prince with God, right? And he changed his name to Israel. But there's a character that is associated with the name. And you'll oftentimes find this in the Old Testament. You'll find that their name indicates more than just a moniker, but it can be inside into what is taking place. Notice the name Bethlehem Judah. The word Bethlehem means the house of bread. We hear about that every Christmas. We talk about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, the city of David. It is, a, it is the house of bread. Judah means praise. One of the sons, the 12 sons of, of Jacob was Judah, which means praise. Elimelech means my God is king. Naomi means pleasant. Uh, Ephrathites, you know it talks about Ephrathites here. Ephrathites means those that are fruitful. So it seems as though that this was a place of God's will, of God's land, and of God's people. His name means God is king. Her name means pleasant. And so we find... This is a place of supply. No doubt now, no doubt. Don't be deceived. Even though Bethlehem is the house of bread, what does the scripture say? They're going through a famine. 
tough time in the house of bread. Even though that they are Ephrathites, which means fruitful, it's not real fruitful right now, having difficulty, having problems, but it seems as though that they're in the right place in the will of God with God's people in the land, despite the fact that they're going through a famine. Now, is God still king when we go through a famine? Amen. He is. Is this place, this church, or God's people still a fruitful people even though they're small in number? Even though there's difficulty? Even though there are problems? We all go through these ups and downs. Then The nation is going up and down and up and down. He's along for the ride. He's in the place of God's people. He's in the area where he should be. And yet, and yet times are tough. There is a famine in the land. The supply of the Lord is still faithful. Even though they're going through a famine. Is God still on the throne? Does God still have the ability to bring bread from the sky? To feed it? Is he the same God? Absolutely. Peace and pleasantness will be brought by being in the will of God. And that's what I want to emphasize here. This is a sad departure. They're leaving a place where they can say, God, I am in your will. I am among your people. I'm where you place me. Times are difficult. Listen, God does not, God's not bound God's not bound by the judgment of a nation to cause every one of his people to endure that difficulty. I'll give you an example. You remember Elijah? Elijah who flashed on the scene in Kings and how he told Ahab the king that it would not rain for three years. He went up to the brook Cherith. He lived there. We don't know for exactly how long, maybe a year or so. The brook ran out. He went down to the, fem- the village, uh, uh, went to the, 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 the widow, uh, widow's house. God instructed you the widow's house. What was going on in the city? Do you remember? Famine. They're about to die. She's lost everything. She's out looking for two sticks to burn together to cook the last meal so her and her son could die. There's a famine in the land. Did, did, uh, did Elijah just lay down and die because there's a... No, no. What did God do? God supplied her need in the midst of a nation that is enduring the judgment of God. God's meeting the needs of this faithful woman day by day by day by the barrel of meal, you know, the flask. You know, God's meeting it day by day. That could have been uh, Elijah. Uh, uh, Elimelech, I don't know why I can't say that name. That could have been the situation with Elimelech. It could have been a situation that says, God, I'm going to stay where you are. You're the God that provides. You are Jehovah Jireh. You provided for Abraham. You can provide for us. But the passage is bereft of any kind of call on God. Elimelech seems... As though God is not part of the equation. He's looking at it like a spreadsheet. There's more, there's more that is needed than more that is supplied. Uh, we got to do something. 
instead of lifting his eyes to God, we see a sad departure. He leaves. Listen. Don't let a famine in your life cause your eyes to look elsewhere. A famine should cause our eyes to look up to God. (laughs) Not to look for greener pastures, solving my own problems. A plus B has got to equal C. Therefore, I've got to go to this place. I've got to do this thing. It it is out of God's will. I know it is beyond the circumstances of what I'm supposed to do, what God has called me to do, where God has called me to be, but I have to do it regardless of God. I just got to do it anyway. Regardless of God or no God, I'm doing it. That's a dangerous place to be. God or no God, this is what I've got to do. That's Elimelech. That's the decision that he is making. Notice the sadness of their departure. But then notice also the sight of their dwelling. Back to verse number 1, the last phrase. To sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. Their roaming took them to the land of Moab. Psalm 108 verse number 9 is God's description of Moab. Moab is my wash pot. That may not mean a whole lot to us, but J. Vernon McGee, who's a great Bible commentator, y'all know J. Vernon McGee, he, he, he paraphrases this verse meaning this. Moab is God's garbage can. Moab is a place of God's refuse. Notice what is happening here. They left the house of bread for a garbage can. Now, doesn't look that way from the outside. Right now, things are tough in Bethlehem. Things are going okay in Moab. But they knew, they knew Moab was a place of the enemies of God. They might not have known this whole thing about wash pot. That comes later on in the Psalms. I get that. But the truth of the matter is, they knew Moab were the express enemies of God's people. They know the enemies over here. They're in the land of God's promise. They're in the land of Canaan land. They're in the land of their descendancy. I know things look tough in Bethlehem. And they're looking over at Moab and saying, man, things look pretty good in Moab. God or no God, I got to go to Moab. Instead of having faith in God and trusting in God, they take off for Moab. Moab is always seen in a negative light in the Bible. Moab is a type of the old man and of the fleshly desires of the old life. Do you know where Moab's descendants came from? You remember this? They come from the descendants of the incestual relationship between Lot and his daughters. That's this descendancy. A cursed descendancy. An incestual relationship. They've always been the enemies of God. It is a, it is a place that is dictated by the flesh. You know, truth be told, the distance between Moab and Bethlehem ain't that far. Doesn't make that big of a difference. It's only separated by the Jordan River. Now, one of the things about the Jordan River is interesting is that 
You can also make an application in when you see when you see uh, Joshua crossing the crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land. There is a sense in which there is a dying to an old life, a dying to a self, a dying from a selfish uh, a selfish way of life to a God-led spiritual life. We see that with Elijah. Uh, and crossing the Jordan River as well. It is always a picture of a dying to the flesh and living for the Spirit. That's going into the promised land across the Jordan. Could it be said that the going from Israel, from the Canaan land over into Moab is a putting on of the old man? Putting on of the old flesh? I think that's interesting to note here. It's because... Elimelech is looking through fleshly eyes at his situation and not through eyes of faith. The distance here is the distance between the spiritual life and the natural life, the fleshly life. At one time, God was king, and now they're being led by the flesh. As we follow this family, we see their sons while living in Moab, took to themselves wives of other nations. This is a blatant violation of God's express law that they knew what these young men did in Moab was expressly forbidden by God. Notice the word sojourn. Verse number 1, it talks about Bethlehem Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, we're not given anything about the ages of these, so we can't, can't speculate. But the word sojourn here, in other translations, it, it, it speaks about a quick visit, a passing through. The word sojourn indicates a brief time or a short time. But they ended up living there well beyond a season of famine. Famines don't last 10 years. And we know that after, uh, after Naomi's husband dies, she spends 10 years. Even if they crossed into Moab and the next day Elimelech croaks, she still spent 10 years in Moab. Sojourn doesn't mean 10 years. You know, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. And I, I, under, I, under, I can understand that. Everybody's been there. People make decisions. Listen, I've got to... You know, take for COVID, for example. COVID. COVID hit, I don't know, a couple years ago. Late in the year I came to this church in 2020. COVID had hit. And from what I remember for you, it did a lot to this church. It, it, it really did a lot to the people of this church. COVID came, people started backing away. We saw it all over. Backing away from assemblies, backing away from being with God's people. And, and the intent was, this is just, this is short. We're just, we're just being cautious. We're being careful, caring about other people. We don't want our membership to die and this and that. And, and so, could we not say that that was, that was supposed to have been a sojourn? It's supposed to be in, I don't know, what do you think of sojourn? Six, eight months? 
a necessity, no doubt. It was very threatening. There was a lot of questions. The disease was having a lot of impact on people in a very negative way. There's a lot of things going on. There, there's not a whole lot of answers. And so it's supposed to have been a sojourn. You know, just back away a little bit. That sojourn has turned into a way of life. For many, many that were once vibrant, plugged in, serving the Lord, now it has become something. I, I tell you what, the cost of what many of the people of God that have backed away from God's house, that have sojourned away from God's house, that cost is not going to be felt next year. It's not going to be felt six months. It's going to be felt 10 to 15 years later. Just like we see with Naomi. Standing in front of graves of the most beloved people of her life. Wasn't felt initially. Wasn't felt quickly. I believe we're going to, we're, we're going to pay a heavy price in this nation. For what took place among God's people in the year 2020. Where we... It's just a short time. We're just backing. And everything else in the world began to crowd out. And they never made it back. And they're living in Moab. Here we see that a sojourn turned into decades. Decades. This is a story that repeats itself over and over and over in our lives and families within the church. You think about it. Just a few decisions invoking, uh, involving taking a break, taking a step back just for a season, just away from the things of God can turn around to 10 years later looking at a life that has been filled with destruction. This kind of thing happens over and over. And like I said, with COVID-19 is a great example of that. And I, I've seen it even before then. Well, we're just kind of taking it back, you know, my daughter's in, in ball, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what your ball thing is. Yeah. But when ball takes the place of everything that's going on in the house of God, when it, when it becomes so overwhelming, there is no room for God in our lives. Hey, I'm, I'm busy life just like everybody else. I do. I do. I, I, there are things that I want to do. There are things that take up my time that I want to spend more time on this and that. But this needs to be a priority. And when we sojourn deeper and deeper in Moab and the sojourn becomes not a sojourn, it becomes a lifestyle, it becomes decades upon decades, there's a price to pay and we see that. Notice second of all, we see be cautioned by the reproving of the Lord. A while back we did that sermon series on the blessings of being a believer. And uh, in that series, it, it didn't seem like it when I read the text, but it we talked about how that the chastening of the Lord is a blessing. When God chastens us, it is a blessing. One of my texts was Hebrews 12, 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. And notice in this verse, there seems to be a progression. He chasteneth, then he scourgeth. He smacks the hand. No, no, that's what you do with the child. No, no. As they persist, the, the, the discipline becomes more increased, more drastic measure. 
With each trespass, the punishment is more intense. I believe we see that somewhat in these verses. And, and I'll look, let's look first of all at the initial result. Look at verse number 2. Notice when it says that Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi. We saw that Elimelech means king. That God is king. Naomi is pleasant. And the name of his two sons was Malon and Chilion. I didn't mention the meanings of those names, but I am here. Malon means sickly, ill, unhealthy. Chilion means pining, wasting away, and puny. I don't know about you, but I don't know if I call my kid puny you know, as a name. I don't think these are, these are names that she's been holding on to all of her life to name her sons. These are names that paint the picture of, I believe, their early life as babies and in, as children. They were sickly. They were, they were puny. They, they, they were not well. Now it's clear, when Elimelech left Bethlehem, Judah, he did so when these boys were already born. So we're not saying that these two boys were born in Moab, okay? I'm not, ta- not saying that. But there may be some early indication that things aren't exactly right in the household of Elimelech. Now I'm a firm believer that a person does not just wake up one morning and decide to venture out of the will of God in drastic actions. For example, a guy just doesn't wake up one morning and decide to leave his family, leave his wife, and go run off with some hussy. just doesn't happen. It just doesn't immediately happen like that. It happens months before in the heart. In in resentments and lusts that are well before he ever sets foot out to leave his family and his wife. Starts a long time before. And so, I, I wonder, I, I just, I really wonder, does this, is this an indication of an initial result of him, of him turning away from God, basically leaving the will of God before he ever set foot out of Israel into Moab. Is this something going on in the heart? You take, for example, other situations with Elisha. Elisha, who who prayed that a woman would have a baby. This woman was kind to him. They did things for him. He did something for her. She was without child. He he prayed that she would have a child. She had that child. Do you remember the story? How that the child was out with the father in the field. They were working. All of a sudden the child says, my head, my head. And the, sir, the father says, take him to his mother. He, he's hurt. And he, by the time he gets to the mother, the child's dead. Do you remember that? And how that, what did she do? She got up and went to where? The prophet. To see the prophet about her child. In other words, she began to petition God on the behalf of a child. What about Jairus? Jairus' daughter. His daughter was sick, even dead. And what does he go? He runs to the Savior. He he runs to the healer. Do we see Elimelech calling on God for his six sons? Calling on the Lord God, we pray you'd supply the need. Oh God, touch my boys. 
Do we find him running to the prophet or running to the deliverer, some, some deliverer in that day and the time? Do we find him running to the judges? No. No, I, I think we can safely say that Elimelech's heart turned away from Israel, turned away from God before he ever set foot in Moab. And there might have been that first indication. Now listen, I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, let me be clear, not every negative thing that happens to us is the chastening of God. I in no way am indicating that if you or someone you know has a sick child, it has to do with their sin. Jesus made that clear. Remember when they came across the blind man and they asked, who, may, who, who was it, the mother or the father that sinned that caused this man to be blind? Jesus said, neither. It's for the glory of God. God opened his eyes and the name of Jesus went forth in power. All right, I understand that. Don't, don't get me wrong here. 1 Peter 5.10 also says, but the, grace of all, but the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after that ye have suffered a while make you perfect establish, strengthen, and settle you. Suffering oftentimes can be done in our lives for the profit of our spiritual growth to make us whom God wants us to be. But when chastening does come, as I have said before in that message a few weeks ago, I believe you'll know it. When God's taking you to the woodshed, you'll know what for. You'll know what for. Just, you would think it would be unjust for a parent to scourge or whip or punish or spank a child and the child have no idea as to what they've done wrong, no explanation, no warning. That, that's bad parenting. You're not going to find a heavenly father doing that in your life and my life without us knowing it. You'll know it. You'll know it. Nobody else will. Your wife, your husband may not know. Nobody, your friends may not know. Your co-workers may not know. They may look at you and say, oh, what a godly man going through trials and, and all this. And deep down in your heart, you know what this is about. Hidden in back closets or back alleys or things that need to be made right with God that you've kept, a, a kept something under a bush or, or put away somewhere for the longest. You'll know why this has happened. It won't be, it won't be puzzling. You'll know. Here we see, I believe, take it or leave it. It may be that I'm seeing more in the text. It may be there. But I believe things were going on. Things were not right even when he was in Bethlehem. And God began to, that progressive, hey, get your attention. Listen to me. You're going the wrong way. Should have had him calling out to God when in reality it finds Elimelech running to another nation trying to fix his problems without the help of God. And that leads me from an initial result to an intense recompense. Of course, number three, verse number three, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Then ten years later, five, verse number five, Malon and Chilion died also, both of them. It's clear in the Bible, however, that God will use more Intense means to get our attention. You know, we're so bullheaded. You know, I, I've, looked, I've looked at places. I've looked at places in my own life where I know it was the chastening. It was drastic. 
it costs me dearly prices to be paid even to this day. But I saw exit ramps a long time before it. There were places, there were, there were close calls, there were this and that where I could have dealt with things, I could have repented, and the recompense be far less than what I'm dealing with today. There is more and more intense, intense uh, judgments that follow. We can see sickness, financial problems, sorrow, pain. All of these have the potential of being warning shots from God. Things that ought to get our attention to cause us to look to Him instead of looking to ourselves and persisting in our sin. But if we persist, God's discipline may come in more drastic and even fatal action. Paul conveyed this. Conveyed the truth in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11.30 For this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. John says there is a sin unto death. I'm a firm believer that if you persist, if you are God's child and you persist in sin, you're either number one, not a child. Well first of all, it, it, you may suppose you are. But if you persist in sin and there is no chastisement and you go so far as to throw things away and go further and further in sin and there is no recompense, I believe you're not a child of God. But if that is the case, if you indeed are a child of God, then I'm going to tell you this, you're walking in dangerous ground. There is a sin unto death. He'll take you out before He'll, he'll let His name be dragged through the mud of sin. Because of certain sin, God disciplines His people. Even with the full measure of death, God can deal with us in a firm way and even a fatal way. But let this be a warning. You don't have to go that far. You don't have to venture that far into sin. See Naomi here. You see that? Uh, let, let, Naomi, let what Naomi experiences be a warning, a reproving from God. And that's what comes to me my last point. Be comforted by returning to the Lord. Look at 6 and 7. And she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard the country of, uh, in the country of Moab how that God had visited His people in giving them bread. She sent forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on their way to return unto the land of Judah. There is... There in this pagan land, in a pagan cemetery, was buried three of God's people. A monument to a jealous God. And no doubt the grieving heart of Naomi might have asked, Why did we ever leave Bethlehem? Why are we in this place? She still paid a heavy price. And here, here she makes a decision. She makes a decision to repent. Look, Notice her repentance. It says that she arose with her daughters, to return from the country of Moab. Notice she is returning. And also the phrase from the country of Moab. It seems the Bible is going out of its way to describe this turning. From one direction to the complete opposite direction. Elimelech left Bethlehem Judah to go to Moab. Naomi is doing an about face going from Moab Back to, as we'll see, back to Bethlehem, Judah. It is an about face, 180 degrees. That's what repentance is. To repent. It means to change direction, to go in the opposite direction. Repentance is an essential part 
of not only salvation of sinners, but the sanctification of saints. We in our flesh are bent toward Moab and we must purposefully repent, turn away from sin to face God. Too often, instead of repenting in the opposite direction, we play leapfrog from one sin region to another. A situation like this would be Naomi leaves Moab and starts a new life in uh, starts a new life in Edom. Uh, Edom is still the enemy of God. Edom is still from the incestual relationship. One was Moab, one was Edom. Edom is still a place where she shouldn't be, and she's just going from the from the frying pan into the fire. When in, but so many people do that. They'll hop lily pads. They'll go from one relationship to the other relationship to the next job to the next place and make a bad situation worse and worse and worse when in reality what they need to do is do an about face and get back to God. Go back to God. Go back to God's will, God's people, God's land, God's book, God's standard, what God wants me to be. Go back to that. And Yet people hop place to place, job to job, pleasure to pleasure, to thing to thing, never realizing they need to make a 180 degree turn and go back to God. Why do people do this? Because they're unwilling to repent and to turn to God. Leapfrogging from situation to situation out of the will of God and going further and further from the will of God. But that's not her. She makes a 180. She knows where she needs to go. Her resolve, notice in verse number 7, she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her and they went on their way to return unto the land of Judah. Naomi had resolved in her heart that this place was not what it had presented itself to be. That the price for her rebellion was too high, that it was only a matter of time uh, uh, to the chastening of the Lord would find her in Moab as well. And so just like the prodigal son, she came to her senses and made her way back to God. Many of us should resolve our hearts to stop living on the borderland, tiptoeing in Moab, knowing knowing that this experience would be far too high a price to pay and once and for all make our way back to God, to the will of God, to the person of God. Repent. Turn again. Listen, when we read, you know, as I thought about this and I'm preaching, hey, Elimelech should have never left Bethlehem. I'm thinking about that, that's my message. And I come to the end of the message and I'm thinking, well, wait a minute now. What about Ruth? Had Elimelech stayed, had Elimelech stayed in Bethlehem, Ruth would have died and gone to hell and endured the judgment of God as a pagan in Moab. Brother Ronnie, how can you say? How can you say that Elimelech should have stayed in Bethlehem? I'm telling you this. And as we go through the book of Ruth, you know, you'll see how God resolves things. But all things 
work together for the good of them that love God and are called according to His purpose. God can take a mess that you made and He can reach people through it. God can take the worst of decisions and stand them on their head for the glory of God. Best thing for you to do right now is just come home. Come home! Kirk Patrick's song that drove so deep in the heart of the young soloist brought him back to his senses and his relationship with the Lord. It goes this way. Of course, you know some of these verses, but some of them we never sing. I've wandered far away from God. Now I'm coming home. The paths of sin too long I've trod. Lord, I'm coming home. I've wasted many precious years. Don't that sound like Naomi? I've wasted so many precious years. Now I'm coming home. I now repent with bitter tears. Oh, that's Naomi. Now I'm coming home. I'm tired of sin and straying, Lord. Now I'm coming home. I'll trust thy love. Believe thy word. Lord, I'm coming home. My soul is sick. My heart is sore. Now I'm coming home. My strength renew. My hope restore. Lord, I'm coming home. My only hope, my only plea, now I'm coming home. That Jesus died and died for me, Lord, I'm coming home. I need His cleansing blood, I know. Now I'm coming home. Oh, wash me whiter than the snow. Now I'm coming home. Oh, wouldn't it be a good time if you're away from God? No matter the expense, no matter the price, just come home. Come home to God. God can resolve all those things you know. You know this has a storybook ending. The guy gets the girl, and you know they 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 have the they have the grand they they bear the grandfather of the greatest king that ever lived, and she's included in the lineage of Jesus. What a story of Ruth! God can take your worst mistakes and turn them for His glory. Just come home. Just come home to Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you for this account. God, as a chastening reminder to my own heart, tiptoeing in Moab can, be, can cost me more than I'm wanting to pay. Like the old preachers used to say, keep me longer than I want to stay. God, I pray that you'd remind us all that we can come home, we can make an about face. God, you can resolve the issues, the problems, the sin. We've never gone too far. What a great example. They had been there 10 plus years away from God, out of God's will, and yet you call them home and resolve things in such a beautiful picture of your redeeming love and grace. Oh God, let us come home. Remind us to come home. Make things right with you. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.